This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is new every day. We pray that you would speak to us afresh by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. How's your new year going? Uh, Perhaps this new year is full of promise and eager anticipation. Some in our midst, I know, are eagerly awaiting the arrival of a baby uh, any day now for some. Uh, Others are starting new jobs. For some, this is a season of waiting and wondering with all sorts of unknowns and uncertainties. For others, this new year is perhaps marked by grief and suffering, by disappointment or loss. Well, Psalm 40, a portion of which we read a moment ago, describes a scene of desolation. The psalmist writes of having been in a horrible pit in the mire of clay. I imagine such a picture resonates for countless souls around the world this morning. And not just in areas devastated by war or fire or flood or famine, but in every home and every heart where there is brokenness, pain, sickness, despair, or loneliness. But the psalmist, while not for a moment glossing over the difficult times, began with these words. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my call. The psalmist, of course, has reason to be happy, for he has been rescued, and he has a new song in his mouth. But what about before deliverance comes, before justice is granted, before suffering comes to an end? How then, in the midst of turmoil, are we to wait? Though we might sometimes say, oh, I just can't wait any longer, the truth is we don't get to choose how long we have to wait most of the time. The only choice we have concerns how we will wait. We can either wait it out and tough it out in frustration or anger, or we can wait on the Lord. But we should note something else from Psalm 40. The writer doesn't speak of waiting only on the Lord. He speaks also of waiting patiently. I think if I were ever to write a psalm about waiting, it might have to be about waiting impatiently on the Lord. But regardless of our patience or impatience, this psalm reminds us that God does hear our cries for deliverance. And the trust that we are to have is not in the timing of when God will rescue us, or even as to the specific outcome of our cries for help, but rather our trust is in the one in whom we put our trust. For it is God who made us, who knows us, and who loves us. 
The promise of salvation is a theme that runs not just through today's psalm, but is also very present in our reading from Exodus. The account of the Passover and the blood of the lamb being put on the doorposts tells of God's rescuing of his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And it was also against a backdrop of waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled and in a land torn by brutal oppression that we encountered John the Baptist this morning as he sees Jesus coming towards him. Last week, we were thinking about the baptism of Jesus. Here, John refers back to that and the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, confirming who he was, namely the Son of God. Today, we encounter John No longer as we did back in Advent, shouting, you brood of vipers. But rather, as he sees Jesus walking towards him, he declares, here is the Lamb of God. If ever a phrase was pregnant with meaning, this is surely one. What was John thinking? What did he mean when he called Jesus the Lamb of God? Well, this morning, I want to suggest four possible ways that Jesus is the Lamb of God. First, we need to think back to God's rescue plan for his people when they were slaves in Egypt, of which we read a short extract earlier. God had sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt, and you may remember that culminated in God sending ten dreadful plagues as the Pharaoh kept refusing to let God's people go. And the final terrible plague was upon the firstborn children and cattle of all of Egypt. The only way that God's people could be saved was to sacrifice a lamb and smear the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of their homes. And that would be the sign to the angel of death to pass over those homes and not destroy the firstborn. And of course, that is what is still celebrated today by Jewish people all over the world in the feast of the Passover. But just as the blood of the Passover lamb was the sign for the deliverance of the Israelites in Egypt from death, so in Jesus, his blood delivers all who turn to him from eternal death. So in that sense, the first sense, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, the second way that Jesus is the Lamb, which may have been in John's mind, relates to the daily sacrifices that were offered in the temple in the morning and in the evening. John's father, you may remember, uh, John the Baptist's father was Zachariah, and he was a priest. And John would have grown up very familiar with these morning and evening sacrifices. And these daily sacrifices are echoes of what had happened long ago to Abraham when God was told to t- when God told Abraham to take his firstborn son his long awaited son the hope of the nations that son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice horrendous but in God's bigger plan that was not carried out because God provided an alternative a ram was in the thicket and was offered in Isaac's place. Well, just as God provided a lamb then, so in Jesus, 
he provided the lamb who was to be slain once and for all for the sins of the world. So that's the second way in which Jesus is the lamb of God. And of course, they all overlap. But thirdly, a look at the Old Testament prophets reveals that Isaiah had spoken of the one to come who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the Israelites now moving on in history, past Abraham, past the Exodus, and to their time in exile, longing for the promised Messiah, for the one who would come, waiting for God's salvation. And they had set their hope on the one who by his suffering and sacrifice would save the people. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus came to do. And then fourthly, and this is a picture we're perhaps less familiar with. In that time, the lamb was the symbol of a warrior, of a conqueror. About 200 years uh, before this was happening, um, there had been a rebellion led by Judas Maccabeus, who had led this Jewish revolt. His symbol was a horned lamb. And of course, Jesus is the greatest king who though he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, by his death and resurrection, he conquered and won the victory over the power of sin and death. Well, it's hard to know just exactly what the crowds would have made when there's John saying, here's the Lamb of God. But the first would-be disciples see this and are curious. What does this mean? I'm sure they were asking. And so, wanting to find out more, they follow after Jesus. And Jesus turns and sees two of them. And he says, what are you looking for? What a great question. What are you looking for? That's a question that's good for us to ask on so many levels. You know, for the, for the person today whose home and livelihood may have been swept away in fire or flood. You know, I think of the extraordinary calamities on Australia. They've had months and months of these devastating fires, and now they've got flooding. Well, people in that situation are probably looking for their most basic needs to be met. Or for a person who's living in fear of rioters and looters and violence, they're looking for safety, for security. But whatever your circumstances, whether you are rejoicing greatly or waiting patiently or impatiently, what are you looking for in the year ahead? Is it a new job? Is it better pay? Is it healing of a relationship? Is it answers to burning questions? Well, let's take a look at how the two disciples responded to this question of Jesus. And I have to say, rather oddly, it seems to me, and I always smile when I read this. It's partly because culturally it doesn't quite fit. So it's a, it seems like a very odd answer. You know, here's Jesus, the Son of God, standing right in front of these two disciples, asking them what they're looking for. And they say, uh, where are you staying? Like, what a bizarre thing to say. It's like saying, oh, nothing. We're just, you know, walking along up this dusty track. Well, except, of course, there's so much more to it than that. I mean, culturally... They were looking at the one who was this teacher, this rabbi. And where are you staying is full of, you know, can I come to and sit at your feet? And I get that. 
they're not interested in his address. They want to learn more from him. And they know that, and Jesus knows that. And of course, Jesus knew a whole lot more besides. He knew their hearts, their longings, their joys, and their fears. I'm sure that he saw in these two men all the potential that they had to be his followers. And so he does. He invites them to come and see. And so began a most remarkable journey for these two young men. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and another disciple, almost certainly John, the author of this gospel, then follow Jesus. Little did they know what this would lead to. This was not about having some intellectual curiosity satisfied. This was about hearing and responding to the call of Jesus to follow him, to serve him, and to tell the world about him. The call to follow Jesus, then and now, is full of hope, full of forgiveness, full of salvation. And with it comes this call to share the good news with others, wherever that may be. Whether it's the other side of the world, in Thailand, in Chiang Mai, where some of our folks are still there following this recent uh, mission trip. Or whether it's right here in Pittsburgh, at the university, in the hospital, or high school, at home, or with your neighbor, the person who lives right next door to you, we are to extend the invitation to those around us to come and see. Come and see what Jesus has done in my life. Come and see what meaning, what purpose, what comfort I have found in following Jesus. That is something that we can all do. And so I hope that this gospel reading this morning may be a great encouragement to any who feel timid about sharing their Christian faith with those who might not believe. Clearly, we don't have to try and explain the whole thing in a first conversation. In fact, I think that's a really bad idea. No, the model here is simply to invite someone and to say, come and see. No matter how many discussions we may have, how many books we read and recommend, how many church services we bring folks to, each and every one has to come and see for himself or herself. It's personal. We cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. We can only say to someone, come and see, or perhaps try it and see what happens. In faith, that if a person does try it, then they will find for themselves the truth and the joy of what we believe. Now, having said that, it's personal, it's for each one, we do have a role to play. It is our job to bring others to Christ. What they do when they encounter him is between them and God and not our responsibility. Andrew, the first disciple, immediately goes to find his brother Simon. And he told him about Jesus, and he brought him to Jesus. We can do the same. And that can mean bringing friends to church, of course. But more than that, it means bringing friends to Christ. Last summer and in the fall, uh, many of us read that little book, Surprise the World, 
Indeed, it was our theme for the parish weekend in October. We learned in it that simple acronym, BELLS, B-E-L-L-S. Bless, eat, listen, learn, scent. Being a disciple of Jesus is a lifelong journey of blessing others, of eating with others. I'm so glad when young Riley said we could take them out for some food. What a great answer. Um, especially those who are not Christians. L, listening for God's voice and his direction as we pray for our neighbors, our colleagues, and friends. And the other L, for learn, as we learn all that we can about Jesus in the pages of the Gospels, in what we read about him. And the S of bells, crucially, stands for scent. Every follower of Jesus Everyone who has come and seen and encountered God's salvation is a sent one. This is not the calling for professional missionaries who might go somewhere else. This is the calling to every one of us who follow Jesus. We are sent to invite others to come and see. My theology professor in Oxford many years ago, Alistair McGrath, said this about sharing our faith. The fundamental motivation for evangelism is that of generosity, the basic human concern of sharing the good things of life with those whom we love. It does not reflect a desire to sell or dominate. It arises from love and compassion on the part of those who have found something wonderful and want others to share in their joy. If you have found something wonderful in following Jesus... Share that with others. Daniel Niles, a Christian leader from Sri Lanka, put it even more simply. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Andrew bringing his brother to Jesus is a great reminder that often the most effective sharing happens among family and friends. Jesus calls us to come and see for ourselves, and he calls us to bring others that they too may encounter the living God. And in all these things, we are helped by the grace of God, by the presence and the power and the prompting of his Holy Spirit. And so the psalmist reminds us today that God does hear our cries, and his love, his love and his faithfulness will keep us safe forever. And as St. Paul gives thanks to God for the faith of the Christians at the church in Corinth, he reminds them in verse 7 of our epistle reading that they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. And he assures them of the strength that God will give them to live up to their callings. He writes, God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is written to the church. It's written to us, plural. God is equipping us with every spiritual gift. God is calling us to shine the light of his glory in the world. To those who have responded to that call of God in our lives, take comfort this morning. No matter what the year ahead may bring, our Lord Jesus, verse 8, will strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one 
who enables us to be blameless. Not our best efforts and trying harder, but in Jesus. And to those here this morning who may feel like you're stuck at the bottom of a desolate pit, I pray that you would hear God's voice afresh this morning. He knows your name. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses, your failures, your heartaches. He knows it all. And shockingly, amazingly, he profoundly loves you. Call out to him and you will soon discover that he's already reaching out to you, inviting you to come and see. So let me finish with these words. Come and see. Perhaps for the very first time, or maybe in a fresh way today, all that God has done for you in Christ. Come and see all that he has for you. Come and see the Lamb of God.